Good evening, my friends. In anticipation of Shavuos, which is just about 25 hours away now, I want to wish each and every one of you a good Yom Tov, Chag Sameach. In the verbiage that the Rebbe used to use, Kabbalah Satera, Besimcho Bepnimius. My wish to each and to every one of you is that you merit, that we all merit, amongst the sons and daughters of Israel to receive Hashem's Torah all over again for the 3,332nd time and that we receive it in a joyous state with happiness and that we receive it literally translates as inwardness but perhaps it's more easily appreciated as meaningful it should be a meaningful thing it shouldn't be something which rolls off a duck's back as they say something that we're impervious to something that doesn't modify or change us something that doesn't in some way stimulate a growth or any kind of inner transformation so this is our hope. This is, that's the syntax that Rebbe always used. And that's, that's the hope, and that's the prayer, and that's the blessing that I want to extend to each and every one of you. We should receive Hashem's Teira, Besimcha, not in an onerous, burdensome way, without kvetching and complaining, as we so often do. Instead of focusing on all the things that are wrong about this year, and how this period of time is trying us and really vexing us. Instead, we should focus on the privilege we have of being HaKadosh Baruch Hu's special children. It's a big privilege. It's a gift. We should focus on that gift. And on Shavuos, we should be joyous. The Gemara says, There's this question that's raised proverbially, but also literally. Do you need to celebrate a Yom Tov in a, in a material sense? With food, with fine clothing, with a joyous get-together. Or can you just focus on spiritual pursuit? And there, are, there is a school of thought that, you know, you can either make Yom Tov about the material element of Yom Tov, or it can become a celebration of spirit. But on Shavuos, Hakol Moedim, on Shavuos everybody agrees, the Be'in Olachem. This has to touch us. It has to move us. It has to uplift us, not only spiritually, but in a way that's felt within the rubric of our bodily and corporeal reality. Because that's what Torah is really all about. As the Rebbe explained many times, the whole idea of Torah is that from this point onward, from Matan Torah onward, holiness can attach itself to and permeate the strata of existence. It's not just a behavioral thing. It's not just something we do. It's something intrinsic and essential. We're actually modifying the material world and preparing it for the coming of Mashiach. So with this little preamble, to help all of you prepare for Shavuos, so that indeed we should be ready to receive the Torah, and that it should be with a state of Simcha, we should do it happily, but it should also be in a, a way of primus, a primistic way, a meaningful way. I wanted to share a few thoughts about the names of Shavuos based on 
the teachings of our beloved Rebbe. I'm pulling this from a number of different sources. I don't have any books in front of me tonight. But I wanted to share with you, share with you the, the teachings as I understand them, as well as to share with you from my heart. I want to share from my heart the, the emotional and heartfelt sense that a yid begins to experience as you approach Erev Shavuos. So when the Torah, and the Torah Shavuos is called Chag HaShavuos. It says, Viasisa Chag Shavuos. You make this festival. What does it mean? Well, Sheva means seven. Shavua means week. Shavuot is celebrated after counting Sheva Shavuot, seven weeks. So it's called Shavuot. You could argue that it is literally the festival of weeks. And it is. Seven times seven. The Torah also calls it, the Chumash Devarim, the Torah calls it Yoim Habikurim, the day of firstling produce. And that's because whilst on Pesach there was a new korban, a fresh offering of grain. We call it the korban ha-omer. The omer is a chalice that was used in the Beis HaMikdash. Like a measure. Omer in antiquity was like saying a gallon, a liter, a quart. So there was this chalice that used in the Beis HaMikdash and it had the exact amount of an omer. And an omer is a, a measurement that Jewish people identified with within the framework and syntax of Yiddishkeit because when we left the land of Mitzrayim and when we were sustained by God's benevolence with the manna that fell, they collected it in a container that was the size of an Omer. So at any rate, the Omer is this layered meaning for Jewish people from the beginning of our nationhood. And as our peoplehood developed, the Omer retained its place of honor in the base of Migdash, and the korban is called korban haomer. But the korban is actually brought of freshly harvested barley. And the barley, the barley is very fresh; it's very wet. So you have to roast it, and only when it's roasted and parched, and you can grind it and you produce some kind of flour. And there is a meal offering, but it's not really a, a high-level meal offering. Bar, the, the barley ripens very, very quickly. And so by the time Pesach comes around, already there's some ripe barley to harvest. But the real new crop, the thing that's, that people used most was wheat. And wheat wasn't available until Shavuot. And the first offering, which was called a korban shtehalechen, there was like these gigantic big breads, and the big breads were brought on the Mizbeach. So that's the Bikurim. It's the beginning of a new year, if you will, of a new, a new cycle of, of produce, of harvest, of flour. After all, bread is a basic staple, basic carbohydrate. And it's also called Bikurim because there was this mitzvah of bringing firstling fruit. A farmer, a plantation owner, somebody who owned the large fields of orchards, or maybe, maybe just somebody who had a few trees on his property. But when you would go out to see this is like two Bishvat time, you know. Just when winter is beginning to fade and the ground is beginning to thaw, when the sap 
is proverbially speaking, starting to course through the veins of the tree, flowers begin to appear, blossoms. Of course, those blossoms will eventually, will eventually develop into little buds, and buds become fruit. So maybe when the petals are still there, maybe, maybe when the petals are just shed and the bulb is emerging, you'd see those very first blossoms. You put yourself at the farmer's headset. You know, it's worked all this amount of time. And finally... He's seeing the fruits of his labor. So he would mark those fruits. Maybe a little piece of yarn. Maybe a little piece of India rubber. He'd mark, he would mark it. And then, of course, all the fruit would begin to grow. And during harvest season, when you reach maturation, you'd find your marked fruits. And you would know, ah, this is the Bikura. That's the first fruit that appeared. The first bud. And this will be brought as a gift to Hashem. From when may a Jew living in the Holy Land of Eretz Yisrael bring the fruits of his land from Shavuot? And it actually went from Shavuot, and you could do this all through the summer, into early fall, into the festival of Sukkot. And if you brought it at that time, you could bring the fruit and you could perform the special rite. There was a proclamation, a reading, but if somebody didn't bring the fruit, you can still bring it till the 25th day of Kislev, which we, the modern Jew, or at least the Jew from the last 23 centuries or so, knows it as Hanukkah, but really it was a date previously also. It was like one of those markers on the, on the calendar when we shifted into the next level of winter. So Yem HaBikurim, make this a Yem HaBikurim, make this a day of acknowledging Hashem's kindness, a day a first thing fruit. These are the names that the Torah gives the holiday of Shavuot. And of course, in our davening, we talk about the fact that Chag HaShavuot is directly related to the giving of the Torah. I mean, that is, after all, what we celebrate, although the Torah seems to speak about it in terms of a holiday that follows Pesach and doesn't have to be celebrated on the anniversary of any event and oftentimes it was not celebrated on the anniversary of Matan Torah. There's a dispute in the Gemara which day was Matan Torah. Was it the sixth day or the seventh day? Everybody agrees it was Shabbat, the seventh day of the week. The question is when they left Mitzrayim. Our tradition is they left Mitzrayim on a Thursday night. A lot to talk about. Bottom line, in our day and age, we do celebrate Shavuot on the sixth day of Sivan, which is the day that the Torah was given, but... Shavuot was not always celebrated on the day the Torah was given. Shavuot in the land of Israel is only one day. And it would many years be celebrated on Hay, on the fifth day of Sivan. If the month of Nisan had 30 days and the month of Iyer had 30 days, you would finish counting seven weeks and it would be the eve of the fifth of Sivan. That's the day before the Torah was given. Conversely, if Nisan would end up with 29 days and year ended up with 29 days well it celebrates Shavuot on the seventh day of Sivan that's not the day the Torah was given so whilst it is true that in today's day and age we do celebrate Shavuot when the Torah was given it wasn't always like that and yet so despite all of this despite all of this the holiday of Shavuot traditionally has been related to the giving of the Torah. It, 
winds its way into our prayers. It's woven into the fabric of our Yom Tov service, our liturgy. We call it Zman Matan Torateno, the time of the giving of the Torah. And virtually all the customs that are associated with Shavuot, or I should say most of the customs, are directly linked in one way, shape, or form to the giving of the Torah. So there you got it. Three names. The Torah calls it Shavuot, a name that reflects the reality of weeks. The Torah calls it Yom HaBikurim, day of firstling fruit, a day which reflects the agricultural reality on the ground, so to speak. And then it's Zman Matan Torah Tenu. Now, very interestingly, these three names actually unfold in a different order than the way I presented it. Let's think about it. The Jewish people came out of the land of Mitzrayim, out of Egypt, out of servitude. And they received the Torah. There was no mitzvah of counting the Omer. The Omer Korban couldn't be brought. And there was certainly no mitzvah. There was no Beit HaMikdash. There was no Mishkan. None of those mitzvahs had been given. So it starts off by being Zman Matan Torah Tenu. That happens to be there was counting as the Ran and the Rashba talk about. But let's leave that aside. The fact that they counted, and this is related to the counting that we perform today, which also represents the anticipation that we feel for Matan Torah, is not necessarily the reflection of the reality on the ground in the fullest sense. The reason that we count the Torah ordains is counting from the Korban Omer, and that is related to the anticipation that gripped the nation when they first left Mitzrayim. But ultimately, the first Shavuot was not celebrated as the festival of weeks or seven weeks. It was actually celebrated on the, not, not after 49 days, not on the 51st, on the, on the 52nd day actually, if you want to get technical about it. So it, it wasn't seven exact weeks. And the Jewish people did not see it as a festival of weeks. It starts off by being Zman Matan Torotenu. That's how this day first happens, if you will. The first Shavuot, 3,332 years ago, God gave us the Torah. A year later, we were counting. We were counting because we received the mitzvahs that are detailed in the book of Leviticus prior to Pesach. And Passover came along. Pesach came and brought a carbon Pesach. And then the very next day, it's the first day of Pesach, and after that, we brought the carbon Omer like all of the other carbonate that were brought. We presume so, and then there was counting. And the counting, the counting climaxed 49 days later on the 50th day and the first anniversary of Shavuot. First anniversary of Shavuot. The big deal. So it starts off, Zman Matan Torah Tenu. That's how it starts off. Before the Torah ordains at a festival, it was a big event the biggest event in history. God gave us the Torah. A year later, it's via Sita Chag Shavuot. And then, only after the Jewish people complete their 40-year sojourn in the desert, only after they leave Midbar Sinai behind forever and come into the land of Eretz Yisrael, only then can we talk about firstling fruit. Only then can we bring the fruits of the land to the base of Migdash. Only then could we see Shavuot as Yom Abikurim. So the Rebbe, in a very beautiful manuscript that was authored 
really in the most trying of circumstances, much worse than a COVID-19 circumstance. The Rebbe and the Rebbe were running from the Nazis. It's, it's 1941. Nineteen forty-one, and they are in Vichy-occupied France. The Vichy government is a puppet, pro-Nazi government, and Jews are being shipped to Auschwitz. And the Rebbe and the Rebbetzin escape to southern France, and there they are in Nice. And the Rebbe pens this manuscript, and he's this is where his head is, in the midst of exploding bombs and a very bleak future. He was thinking about the names of Shavuot. And he says that this really details the development of our relationship with God. Think of it this way. Do your mitzvahs mean anything to God? Does your Torah study touch the Creator? Does your kindness impress the Master of the Universe? Why? I often tell young people, especially non-Jewish people who come to, to the shul, to the synagogue here, to Chabad, and I talk to them about God, if they're non-Jewish audience, talk about the seven Noahide laws. I, I ask them if they believe in God at some point. And, you know, most of these are young men and women, young boys and girls from Catholic schools, they'll invariably say, yeah, and God. And they'll kind of set them up. They ask me, do you believe in God? And I'll say, no. But they're like shocked <laughs> in the synagogue. And the rabbi, the faith leader, is standing up in front of them. And he's, they say, you don't believe in God? I said, believe? Do I believe there's a God? No. I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I, I, I feel like I know there's a God, I said. It's impossible for me to fathom a random nature for creation. I can't fathom it. It makes no sense to me. It's, it's statistical nil, minus zero, more zeros than I can count. I said, this, this room couldn't put itself together so perfectly. My iPhone put, couldn't put itself together. The universe can put itself together randomly by accident. I'm sorry, I cannot accept it. To me, it makes perfect sense that there had to be a super being who brought the world into existence. But let me tell you what I do believe. I do believe that that super being whose reality, if you want to use that word, is beyond what our minds could begin to fathom. Vaster, greater, in every way, in every sense, to the point that those words actually are even meaningless in describing this super being, this awesome creator. That creator, that creator cares about all of us on tiny planet Earth. And not only he cares about the fate of humanity on tiny planet Earth, and we are tiny when you compare us to what's out there. Tiny. Even the sun is tiny when you compare it to stars and galaxies that are near, nearby, several hundred or several million light years away. God cares not only about the fate of humanity on this tiny planet, God cares about you. And not only does God care about you, he cares about what you're thinking. If you have hatred in your heart, this pains the Creator. If you have love in your heart, that cheers the Creator. I said, that makes no sense.
just doesn't make any sense. Why would such a great creator care about what's in my heart? Why would such a great creator be concerned with my behavior and your behavior? Our thoughts, our fears, our hopes, our aspirations, our anxieties. Why does God care about these things? I said, that is a leap of faith. I don't, I don't know that. I can't know it because it actually is senseless or transcendent of rhyme and reason. I can't make sense out of that. But I believe it. I believe it with every fiber of my being. And I also believe that we can't ever really understand why those things are meaningful to God. God needs nothing by definition. A God who is needy is not worthy of my adulation. He's not a God. He's a buddy. So God is omnipotent and needless, and yet He says He needs us. So this really drills down to the crux of our Jewish faith that ordains that God, for reasons inexplicable to us, that God cares about us. That God made us important. He said, God said, we're created in God's image. God said that our behavior is meaningful. God said that what's in our heart and our mind makes a difference. God said that. And that's, that's really the premise. That's the beginning. That's the launching pad. That's the threshold to any kind of spiritual journey or meaning. It's got to be this notion that God made us important. That's Matan Torah. God gave us the Torah. The word Matan is akin to the Hebrew word Matana, which means a gift. Not a gift that we earned. A gift. Just because. Because God decided to love us. Because God decided to care about us. Because God decided it was important to bring us into existence. So it begins with Matana, Matan, God giving us the Torah. And then, very curiously, God wants to have this relationship with us. And the currency of the relationship that we have with God is based on subservience. It's based on commitment. It's based on mindfulness. It's based on emotional development or emotional attachment. Ahava v'yira in Hebrew, a sense of awe and reverence, a sense of love and exuberance and excitement. And it's based on us actually caring. Because when we care and we reach out to God, He responds to us in the language of the Kabbalists. That's called itaruta dilatata, an awakening from below. If you want to use pure Kabbalistic jargon, it's called mayin nechurim, or the feminine mystique. We are the recipients. We're reaching out to God. And when there is haloasman, or itaruta dilatata, an awakening from below, this brings, it, it elicits, it inspires, if you will, in Isarusa de la an awakening from on high. God responds to us. Like uh, somebody who catches your attention. You're not really interested, but they catch your attention. Maybe because they care about you. Maybe because they reach out to you. Maybe because they helped you or saved you. God did all those things for us. But God got our attention, and now He wants us to get His attention. 
He wants us to reach out. He wants us to say that we love Him. Do you know it's a mitzvah to love God? We're supposed to have reverence and respect for God. Do you know that it's a mitzvah to be mindful? Do you know that emuna, faith in Hashem, intelligent faith, the odata hayom, you should know. You have to know Torah and know as much as you can about God. Do you know that those are mitzvahs, tamidias, those are constant mitzvahs, constant moral, sacred duties, instructions from God that necessarily nurture our relationship with Him. It all begins when we reach out to God. You know, if there's a person whose attention you want to capture, it'd be a good idea to find a little about something about the person. The more you find out about that person, the more you know how to get their attention. You know what they like. How would you do that? Well, it's a good idea to find out what they said. God wasn't shy about this. He told us what He likes, what He wants. Now it's our job to reach out to God. That, my dear friends, is what the name Shavuot means. We anticipated the receiving of the Torah. We knew God was going to give us that Torah all over again. Shavuot would come and we'd be there on mark. We'd be ready ready to re-experience, to relive, ready to recommit to Hashem, just like we did on the first anniversary of the giving of the Torah. God reaches out to us. He gives us His Torah. It's a matana. We respond. We respond with Shavuot. We're showing we care. We're anticipating. We're counting up to that moment. So it's an isarusa, an awakening from below. And here's a really important point. It's a really important point. Feeling a sense of yearning, desiring to be close to God and to experience something spiritual, it's nice, it's, it's good, it's important, it's, it's in your heart, it's something that can fill your mind. It doesn't change the world though. I mean, on some level, just living the way we should does make a dent in the darkness of this world, but you don't notice, you don't see in any way, shape, or form how the world's being modified. But, but, when you take material items, whatever it may be, any kind of material, take physicality, you take something that hails from the corporeal strata of our planet and you use it for a mitzvah, you have not only expressed your own desire, your own drive, your own willingness to be mindful and to be emotionally inspired about your relationship with God, you have utilized God's world and by doing so you've harnessed it. By doing so you've redirected, you've sublimated, you've rarefied the material quantum physics of the world in which we live. That's the Yom HaBikurim. Right? We start off with Matan Torah, and then it goes to Chag Shavuot. God reaches out to us, and He gives us a Torah. It's amazing. But after that, we need to reach out to God. And that's those seven weeks of counting. But eventually, it's not enough to live in a desert and study Torah all day. It worked for the first 40 years, and even then it didn't work that well. Because we weren't built for that. We are not a desert nation. We are the nation. We are the nation that is most alive in the land of Israel because that soil is sacred and that geography is it's indigenous to who we are as not only human beings but as members of Am Yisrael. And so when we finally leave the desert behind 
and we come into what's called Eretz Noshevet, a settled land, a land, a land that by its very nature compels you always to raise your eyes heavenward because unlike the land of Egypt that's irrigated by the Nile Delta, the land of Israel is a land of hills and mountains, a, a land of valleys and really checkered typography and, and that rises and rests of the typography of the Holy Land of Eretz Yisrael a most unique and marvelous and not easy farming but it allows for remarkable farming exceptional farming and there's barely any water and so as Moshe Rabbeinu puts it this land that I bring you to is a land that needs heavenly precipitation so just by being in Israel we're always like raising our eyes heavenward is it going to rain? Is God going to sustain us? And in that land, those fruits, you know, it's not an easy, it's not an easy thing to live in the land of Israel and remain mindful and focused. It's much easier in some way to live in the desert and be mindful and spiritual, to be emotionally and intellectually committed and connected. It's much more difficult when life gets busy. And there's all kinds of things that may well populate our hard drive and in some way become obstacles of our spiritual growth. And yet when we can transcend those and something finally grows and you remember that it's a gift from Hashem. And you mark it. You say, yeah, I've, I've worked really hard. I tilled the soil. I weeded. I planted. I did everything. But when a fruit finally grew, I knew it was an opportunity for me to bring it before Hashem and express my thanksgiving, my appreciation, out loud. So when you can do that, this, my dear friends, represents the real awakening from below. And that's what, that's what it's all about. So the three names of Shavuot in their historical formation actually depict the story of our relationship with Hashem. And I want to finish with this. There's another name for Shavuot. It's not found in the scripture. At least not with regard to Shavuot. It's Atzeret. The name Atzeret, the word Atzeret, is used in the Torah to describe the last day of Pesach. It's used to describe the last day of Sukkot, or eighth day of Sukkot, called Shemini Atzeret. But it's never used to describe the festival of Shavuot. It's only used to describe the other two festivals that are week long and have days of culmination and yet and yet in the Mishnah in Mesechet Rosh Hashanah Mesechet Pesachim Mesechet Shabbat and elsewhere Mishnah and Gemara our sages always refer to it as Atzeret that's interesting I mean the, the, the name the word it's a, it's a Hebrew name and it's a Hebrew name and Hebrew word for holidays but not Shavuot it's a Hebrew name describing the seventh day of Pesach, the final day of Pesach, it's a name, it's a word that's used to describe the last day of Sukkot. So why did our sages choose to use this name, which is easily and clearly identifiable as a holiday terminology or description, but they took it away from the syntax of the Bible, of the Torah itself, and they refer not to the last day of Pesach, which is called Achron Shal Pesach, not Atzeret Shal Pesach, it is used to describe the last day of Sukkot. We call it Shmini Atzeret HaChagazah. 
No, our sages didn't use that name. Our sages used this name for Shavuot. So one school of thought is that th there's a very deep message here. The rabbis realized that people thought it was all about freedom. You know, freedom, emancipation, being freed from slavery and oppression, being freed from racism and xenophobia, being freed from abuse, being set free. Such a Jewish idea of freedom, emancipation, such, a, such an amazing spiritual Torah. No, not really. In fact, whilst Charles, Charles, Charlton Heston may have said, let my people go free, Moses never said that. Yeah, it helps to read, read Hebrew because then you can actually read the book instead of watch the movie. It's not what it says in the Torah. Moshe says, Shalachami. He says, set my people forth, set them forth via Avduni, and they will worship me, says God. Where did Moshe get that from? He got that because Hashem says to Moshe, when God appears to Moses in a burning bush, and it's his major prophecy, his introduction to the new Moses, he's about to come. God says, when you will take that nation out of Egypt, Ta'avdun, then they will serve servitude. It's the same word as the word Eved. Ta'avdun es ha'olekim elahorazed. It will serve God at this mountain. So Moses was given that idea from the very beginning. God said, you will go into Egypt. You will set the people free. And you bring them here to serve me. So Moses followed the marching orders. He said to the Pharaoh, Shalachami. Get let, let the nation go. Send them forth. God says, Shalachami. Vi'avduni, you're going to serve him. He wants his nation to serve him. And our sages wanted everybody to understand that Shavuot is not celebrated on the sixth day of Sivan, but it's celebrated exactly seven weeks after Pesach. In other words, it's actually the Atzeret, the culmination of Pesach. Just like the Torah uses the term Atzeret to describe the end of a holiday. It's sometimes understood as the day that God restrains us, holds us back. One more day of Pesach. He restrains us in Jerusalem before we go home for that long, rainy winter. One more day we celebrate together. It's a day of restriction. It's a day that actually describes the activities that punctuate the kind of, of thing we call a holiday, we call a Yom Tov. But, but, it's always at the end and our sages wanted everybody to know that Pesach itself is not what it's about. Pesach is the beginning of a process the real last day of Pesach, the real ending, the real climax and conclusion of the process of Exodus is not on the eighth day of, or seventh day of Pesach when we celebrate the crossing of the Red Sea and being rid of Egyptian domination. But seven weeks later, when we stand at the foot of Mount Sinai and receive our marching orders. That's the Atzeret. That's the real end. And that's a very powerful message. That's why our sages called it Atzeret. Rabbi Levi Yitzchak Barditchev suggests in his magnum opus, Kedushas Levi, that the reason it's called Atzeret is because Atzeret means restraint. As you know, Pesach comes along and we have to prepare for the observance of Pesach. We prepare for Pesach by making sure we have matzah, by getting rid of our chametz. No leaven, but we must have those flat wafers. We have to have moror on hand. In Beit HaMikdash times, we would eat that together with Korban Pesach, 
Paschal offering and the matzah. Today it's only a rabbinic observance. And then, and then we have to tell a story. That's how we observe Pesach. And then we're not allowed to eat chametz. So Pesach is a very, very mitzvah-centric kind of observance. All kinds of unique, special things we do. Observances that are only performed on Pesach. On Sukkot, we kind of do lots of things, but we, we will try to spend as much time doing those positive things in a sukkah. And the next morning, we start with this mitzvah of the Arba Minim, the four kinds. And it brings us together, and it represents ultimately what Sukkot is all about. In the Beit HaMikdash, there was Nisuch HaMayim, they poured water libations, and there was a great deal of joy. Pesach has its flavor, the flavor of matzah, morar, wine, the atmosphere of reclining and liberty and narrative storytelling, the avoidance of anything which could smack of unhealthy ego or self-esteem gone awry. And then Sukkot comes along and it has its unique flavor, its unique punctuation. No, it doesn't have a special food or restriction on the foods you eat, but you know, we're still eating round challahs and there's still honey around. It's still high holiday season and, and, and you're eating in the sukkah, you know. You, you can smell the evergreen, maybe feel the wind and if it's a, a challenging year, you feel some precipitation too and the lulav and the esrig and, you know, the circles being made around the bima commemorating how it was in the time of the base of English. The joy of sukkahs, it, it, it has a certain reverberation. How about Shavuot? I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, you're thinking of cheese blintzes and cheesecake, and you're thinking of dairy delights. Well, that's, that's true. It's only a custom, though. You don't have to eat a kazayat of cheesecake leaning on your left, nor are you required to eat a kazayat of cheesecake in any specific place, not inside or outside. No, we aren't required to carry a bag of blintzes. And really, although it's a beautiful custom to stay awake on the night of Shavuot and study Torah until day breaks, it's not really a mitzvah. And although the Rebbe emphasized so much the importance of bringing Jewish people together, obviously under whatever realities we have to deal with today, and reading the Torah for them, those are just observances that are customary. They're not mitzvahs. So Rebbe Levitzchel Baditchev says the truth is that the truth is that Shavuot has no mitzvah. So what halachas does a person have to know for Shavuot? The same halachot of Pesach sans all the mitzvahs and Sukkot sans the mitzvahs with the exception of Yom Kippur when we're not allowed to cook in order to eat and we don't eat at all. Every Yom Tov is essentially governed by the same principles whether it's Rosh Hashanah, Sukkot, Shemini Atzeret and Pesach or Shavuot. So the Vadit Rebbe says, you know, Shavuot doesn't have a specific mitzvah. Biblically speaking, it's just about restriction restraint. We interrupt our everyday lives and put ourselves into a different operating system. And the Rebbe once asked, okay, why? Why doesn't Shavuot have a mitzvah? Why didn't God give us some kind of observance that was in some way related to giving of the Torah or the harvest? Why doesn't it have a mitzvah? Nebuchadnezzar says something amazing, and with this I want to leave you tonight. He says that's because we know that Shavuot represents the real 
moment God chose us. The Mughan Avram says in Shulchan Aruch in chapter 60, where he talks about the blessings that we recite prior to our morning Shema, Nardavanig. And the Shulchan Aruch says it matters not in which order the blessings are said, but you, you have to hit all the themes because these are basic themes. And he says you have to have certain mindfulness when you say these blessings. And he said, when you say, Uvonu Vacharto Mikolo Amim, says the Magan Avram. When you say those words and he has selected and chosen us, think of Matan Torah. When somebody gets called up to the Torah, what bracha does he make? Asher Bachar Bonu. Not Asher Natan Torah First, Asher Bachar Bonu. Then, Vinatan, and he gave us the Torah. In other words, even before God giving us the Torah, he chose us, he selected us. What does that mean? I mean, didn't he take us out of Egypt? Didn't he tell Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that your progeny will be a nation that I will love and care for? Didn't he tell Father Abraham that his children would be slaves in a foreign land and then be taken back to the land of Canaan that would become Israel? Didn't he talk about these things? What do you mean? He chose us at Shavuot. That's like saying he, you're at a wedding and the Chatan is standing under the chuppah and he raises his eyes and he sees the Kala walking towards him and at that moment he decided, I think I'll marry her. Really? When you asked her to marry, to marry you all those months back, you didn't want to marry her? And when you prepared for a wedding, you weren't planning to marry her. And when you sent out invitations, you weren't planning to marry her. It was only at that moment you made the decision, yeah, I think I'll marry her. Who are you telling stories to? It's ridiculous. It's standing at the foot of Mount Sinai. God's giving us the Torah. First, he has to select us. I'll try to take a very deep and profound thought and squeeze it into just a few short sentences. Chassidus comes along and says that there's an element of us, an element about us that's not unique, it's not special. That's We're just as human as everybody else. We bleed like everybody bleeds. We, we have feelings like everybody. We eat. Same thing. Same thing as all. A human being is a human being. There's no difference in plasma. We don't have a Jewish skin color. There are Jews that are every color. We have no Jewish size. There are Jews of all sizes. We have no Jewish ethnicity, really. There are Jews of varying ethnicities. Sephardic Jews and Ashkenazic Jews are not more or less Jewish, even though they look very different. So, so what does it mean with Jewish? It's just a spiritual thing? Say, no, 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 it's a material thing also. This, as the Zohar says, Nishmas in Kaddishan, there's the holy soul, but there's also Gufundlein Kaddishan. God selected the bodily corporeality of the Jewish people as well. And that, that was a choice. That God valued us for our souls that we had special qualities, that's obvious. But that God values us for who we are in the most literal corporeal sense, that really makes no sense. And that's only because God chose it. You know, if you showed me gold and silver, I'd choose the gold. And that's predictable. First of all, it's more valuable. I happen to think it's more beautiful. Of course I choose the gold. The gold isn't special because I chose it. The gold was special. That's why I chose it. But if you had two things of perfectly kindred reality, absolute perfect equilibrium, and you chose one, it would be special because you chose it. Because you chose it. That's the one I chose. 
that's mine. In other words, the virtue, the value of choice can really only be understood or appreciated when there was no outside cause forcing the choice. This, my dear friends, is what we must contemplate on Shavuot. God chose us. I don't know why. I wouldn't choose me, but God did. God chose us and loves us. And the Rebbe says that mitzvahs, mitzvahs are representative of a specific detail within our relationship with God. The word mitzvah means tzavta v'chibur, it means connection. So the mitzvah, which means a connection, is how we nurture and develop a particular element of our relationship with God. But Shavuot can't be limited to one mitzvah or another, to the particular flavor of this observance or that instruction. Because Shavuot represents the essence of our people, our nation, our beinghood. Shavuot is when we become the Jewish people in the sense that we are Jewish people today. And that's what Shavuot is really all about. Shakespeare would have called it a rose by any other name. I'll call it a yomtef by any name. Or Shavuot by any name. But my friends, if one contemplates the names and the meanings that they bring with them, we are going into one heck of a very inspirational time, very special time. And I suppose I'll conclude where I began, by wishing you, each and every one of you, a wonderful Shavuos, that we should be mikabel, we should receive the Torah B'Simcha with joy, the Pneumius with meaning. I want to bless each and every one of you that Hashem fulfill your heart's desires that all of you have good health and that those of you who have suffered loss and pain should be healed as only Hashem can heal you. I want to bless you that if there's things you dream about but are afraid even to think about, that those dreams and those aspirations, as long as they are good and blessed, the kind of things Hashem wants for you, that they should come true. And our greatest hope, our greatest aspiration, not because of, of a COVID or life being disrupted, but because that's what, that's what creation and our existence is really all about. Our greatest hope and aspiration is that Bimheira, speedily, beyond my will be a mechem in my days and in your days and our days. We should merit to see the coming of Mashiach and the transformation of the world as we see it now forever. The transformation of the world from a place of darkness and suffering, a place of agony and anxiety, a place of broken dreams and broken hearts, a place of selfishness and pettiness that the world instead become the beautiful garden that it flower in the way Hashem always destined it to be, that it become the place that reflects the Creator, that it become the place that nurtures the very best in us, that have become filled with brotherhood and equality, with joy and with plenty, and that in peace and in happiness we should see the fulfillment of Hashem's desires, the coming of Mashiach and the ushering in of what is called Torah Hadasha, a whole new realm and dimension of Torah that's beyond anything we could fathom. Bimheda, 
will be Ameno Amen. Thank you. Good job, Diff.